Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, peeps. Help Me Be Me takes hundreds of hours to create. If you get any value out of the work I do or it helps your life, consider a monthly donation. Even something as small as a cup of coffee helps me keep recording. To donate, please visit helpmebeme.com or visit my page on Patreon. Thanks. Hi, friends. It's Sarah May. And this is a a Valentine's-ish episode in that it's about love. It's called I Need Her, Don't Leave Me, I Can't Live Without Him. It's about love that hurts. Because it shouldn't. It shouldn't feel like it's your lifeline, that you will fall into a million pieces if somebody else chooses to break up with you. This kind of chemical bond is similar to the one we universally experience in high school. Because hormones are high, and sometimes it reaches like an addiction-level chemical intoxication. Past the initial courtship stage, love shouldn't be tied to need, and it shouldn't be able to command your mood and focus. So if you experience it this way and it causes you to do things that betray you and put your needs aside of those of another person, if you find yourself all consumed by the actions or thoughts of another to the degree that it controls your happiness, then this is an episode for you. It's about the particular reasons that this kind of attachment happens and you might not be seeing that they're operating inside of you or know that they are changeable. To you, it probably just feels like you and who you are, and it's not some other powerful unseen force. Because most people who operate like this, they think of it as just how much they care. It's like related to, you know, they think of it as, oh, this is just because I'm really tolerant and I can adapt to a lot of different people. But that's not true. It's just an unhealthy form of attachment, and it can be tweaked once you understand it. So this is an episode to educate more than anything because awareness is the first step to change. So listen to this with the goal of just taking it in. I want to help you begin the process of becoming the kind of person that falls in love from a safe and balanced distance, from a comfortable place inside yourself. And that will always protect you and make you feel like, you know what, I'll be okay. No matter what happens, I know I have myself. So this way of being also allows you to create healthy boundaries and it choose, and automatically you'll choose people who are good for you and capable of loving you back. And more importantly, it'll make you capable of receiving love because truly we teach others how they should love us by how we love ourselves. So if you are not protecting your needs and giving yourself care and loving tension, then you're telling others to not also. So with that, here are the three parts. Part one is the what, part two is the why, and part three are some steps that you can take now. So part one, the what. Feelings of powerlessness, like you can't hold yourself back from diving headfirst into love and 
a relationship. So it might feel like almost like a drug. So if you meet somebody and you're attracted to them, it's like you have to be with them and you don't even care if they're a douchebag. So a person can occupy your mind and your heart, but like obsessively. So it could also be the opposite where you know you don't like a person and that they're not good for you, but you like talk yourself into liking them. Like you will yourself to be into them when you really don't like them at all at first. So it's like when you first start smoking cigarettes, you have to like force yourself because it smells disgusting and it tastes disgusting. And then you're addicted. So maybe you find that you are drawn almost like a magnet to the worst human being at a party who's a mess and untrustworthy and... Maybe you fall in love with people's potential and instead of seeing who they really are now, like you just fall in love because of what they could be. And maybe you fall in love with everybody, like even a a friend who's trying to help you get over your last breakup, like just by proximity, you'll end up dating them. Maybe when you're in a relationship, you constantly find yourself disappointed again and again by this other person and You allow yourself to keep going back and holding on to the hope that they will change. And so you set yourself up, even though no one else you know would tolerate this type of behavior, and yet you subject yourself to it. Maybe you find you are unable to imagine letting go of somebody, even though you hate the way they treat you, and you know that you deserve better, and it degrades you to hold on despite the fact that they have clearly proven to you they are not who you want them to be, nor will they ever be. Maybe they even tell you that. You still hold on. It's almost like you feel like you're attached by like an unseen tether, and you know it's never going to be severed. Like you can't ever imagine breaking up with them or leaving them because that fear and the fear of the pain of the loss is just so overwhelming and terrifying to you. Maybe the fear of losing a person is always going to be worse than the negative of the relationship because you want them so badly you believe you are able to just adapt and tolerate no matter how bad it gets. Maybe you just have a high tolerance for mistreatment and you tolerate behavior that no one should. And maybe when you are in this relationship, you aren't interested in hanging out with friends or family Because you'd rather be with this person no matter who they are. Like your relationship is always going to cancel out everything else you want to do in your life. And maybe when you meet somebody, you feel like you're under a trance. Like everything loses importance and you don't really have motivation to do much. Maybe you try to please this person and be the person that they want you to be. Or you just shape yourself automatically to whatever their likes are. Maybe you've spied on your significant other or multiple people in you've, that you've dated because you just feel painfully jealous no matter who it is. And maybe once you fall in love with somebody, you feel like you can't let go. Maybe when you do lose a relationship, the loss makes you feel so devastated and destroyed that you can barely take care of yourself. Or the loneliness in your life makes it almost not worth living at all. Like you might not know who you are without a partner. And maybe when you're alone or you think about the possibility of breaking up with this person, you just feel terrified and desperate. Like the anxiety is overwhelming. And it even makes you start to cry just thinking of doing such a thing. 
So in short, love and relationships feel more like a need. You need each other. They need you or you need them or else one of you would fall apart. You just wouldn't want to be apart ever. And you can't understand why you take this less than behavior or why you choose these people that are so screwed up compared to you or less than you. But you do because that's just kind of your type and you can't imagine not being with them. And everything, no matter how bad it is, is worth it. So you live in constant fear of what they're thinking, if they're unhappy, or what happens if XYZ, or maybe you just live with the dissatisfaction of the relationship and wish you had more of them, wish you had all these things that you don't have, and hope that they will come to you eventually. Which leads me to part two. Why am I like this? How does this start? Well, what I've described has varying degrees of severity and different labels, um, but there's a lot of overlap in that they stem from our familial dynamics during childhood. So these are all symptoms of codependency, love addiction, and the children of alcoholics or addicts, or anybody who was neglected or abused during childhood. We all have some patterns that are unhealthy related to our attachments, and that's because it's rare not to. Most parents have unhealthy habits themselves, and they pass those on to us because in any environment you grow up, everyone takes on a role. So you figure out your place in the world based on the role you play while growing up. So for example, if you get attention for being your parents' therapist and making them feel better all the time, then you will take on this as a part of your identity. So you might become the saver in your family structure. So what happens over a lifetime of this is you begin to read other people in the same way. So you almost cast them in the other roles as if it were a play. So you might you might cast somebody as the helpless baby or the broken but full of potential type. And based on the reading of this person, you will interpret their actions. So you will literally encode your expectations of them and your interpretation of everything they say or do based on the role you have cast them in. So in short, it will overwrite them as a person as they are and all of their meaning um, because you will color in what they mean and how they feel based on your unique perception of their role. So it actually will tell them how they should act because of the feedback you give them. Your expectations will kind of tell them what you want them to be and how you want them to act. So this role you cast yourself in also becomes the way you interact with other people in your life because it's the role you assume in your own mind. So it's just, it's a structure by which your thoughts come about. So it's how you will feel hurt. It's how you will tell your life story. It's how you will uh, experience anger. And it's how you will frame everything in relationship to yourself. So this this role becomes like the the tone or the angle of this play that is your life. It's like the um, the narrative, so to speak. So there are many plays that start again and again like this, with family especially. So you might find that when you return home after many years of being away, you'll find yourself back in the same role of like the petulant child who no one listens to. When you are totally competent and strong and successful when you're away from there. So 
this role is very powerful in just how it can make somebody act a certain way and feel a certain way about themselves. So that's the first part of the what, the roles that we encode into others and into ourselves. So the second part of this is the building block for the pain piece of love. So the roles we play shape an unhealthy relationship to our understanding of self-worth. So this can come from a parent who's codependent or a parent who's an addict or a parent that's neglectful. Um, but the way that we will experience that creates our self-love and our sense of um, someone else's ability to love us. For example, a codependent codependent parent might make your success and your worth a reflection of their success and worth. So they will live through their control of you and you become their pleaser. So what this does, unbeknownst to you and to your parent, is make your worth as an individual something that is contingent upon their feeling like they have succeeded or that they're good at being a parent. And that is something that you as a child will have to earn and keep up with. And your needs are not important compared to theirs and how they feel if they feel good about themselves. So therefore, your value is nil just as you are. Your feelings don't matter just as you are. And they are invisible to this person who's supposed to love you and take care of you. So you as a child have to try even harder if you want to be loved and you have to like work for it. You have to earn them feeling uh, good about you or, or giving you kind of love and attention to be seen. Because no longer is it about you. And if you are sad or if you are tired or if you're going through like really stressful kid things, it's about them and their life and whether or not they feel, you know, uh, successful enough as a parent. And if you don't work hard enough, you are creating their failure. So it's now in your power to make somebody else happy. And you have to take it upon yourself to take care of them. When in reality, you need a parent who's going to look after you. So this creates self, uh, lack of self-worth because a parent is supposed to just love you as you are. And instead, it's this inherent belief like, I'm not enough as I am. I have to work really hard to get any kind of attention. Therefore, I must always have to do that. I have to show up as this, like, saver, let's say. Another totally different example. If you have an addict parent, they will create a dangerous and hostile environment for their family. And as a child, each person will take on a different coping mechanism around the addict. So the addict might make one person their favorite, and then that person will then enact that role and become like the co-conspirer of the addict because that's the role they've been cast in. They feel special. Therefore, for they will go along with it because they have been given the role by the parent. Another kid might make, um, might take on the role of truth speaker. So then they will act out by fighting the addict and by calling bullshit on everything and saying what's happening. And that will in turn invite more abuse from the addict and also from the other roles, from the saver, from any allies that the addict has created. So that then creates a belief in that truth speaker that they are bad 
and they are unlovable because they have been told this by all of their family roles. The family dynamic constantly reinforces it. So wherever it comes from, our role is very powerful because it's an unhealthy relationship that forms the foundation for all future relationships. So it's how we relate and cope with feelings about ourselves, feelings about others, so we don't grow out of it. It operates in us unconsciously. And that's not true for everybody. Some people are just completely detach from their family dynamic and they don't, um, they choose to sever it. But I think, I believe that it's, it alters us somewhere. It can't not, unless you have another role model that's very prominent in your life that then becomes, replaces the, the structure of um, the family. So if you had like, let's say a grandparent that was like incredible and loving, it might've completely spared you to just to have this one person that was like sane and gave you um, a feeling of worth. So regardless, this, let's just base this off of the former. When you're young, we create patterns that we repeat when we get older. So if you notice yourself continuing patterns that cause you to become overly invested in the feelings of others, and you're unable to stop yourself from obsessing, then that's something likely that started in your childhood. It's the way you feel comfortable relating to others because it's a part of your role. It's your, a part of your identity. So now I want to talk a little bit about what types of roles there are, kind of like archetypes, I guess, and the ones that kind of get you into the most pain when it comes to love. So this is so that you can possibly spot the patterns in yourself that you might feel are operating you unconsciously. So it doesn't mean that any of these, if they ring true for you, that you need to go to a psych ward or anything. It just means maybe investigate further. This is like an invitation for you to delve deeper into your own personal investigations and get to the root of yourself. And you can be multiples of these at different times. So you might find your you, ha you play a couple different roles depending on the type of situation or the people you're around. Number one, the martyr. This is the type of person that um, suffers as a way to show they are virtuous. So you'll find yourself running yourself into the ground to go above and beyond for others and that is where you are most comfortable. So you're also trying to get adoration from others while you neglect your need for love, which keeps you empty-handed and resentful at not getting enough of what you want in response. So the martyr acts in love, how this role acts in love. You choose others who take and take without giving in return. You also choose others who need you and will always need you. So you pick broken people for the most part. The martyr wants to be always going above and beyond. Um, so you'll likely choose people who don't return the gesture for you and you make them basically feel bad for you as a way to control and keep them. So the people you choose are also those who you can control and um, kind of like a faucet you can turn on and off. You'll always have a way to make them feel guilty or praise you or etc. 
And that's because this identity of selflessness is what you focus on. I am so good to them. I do everything for them. I, how could they not give me love and adoration in return? I could give nothing more than what I'm already giving. So this selflessness, however, is just the veil for the need to control. So it's the tool that creates kind of like a relationship that's like a hostage situation. So while you are seeking love from others, you are building resent over what you are not getting. And then in return, they are getting resent because what you are, or they're being filled with resent toward you because what you're doing is caked in expectation. Um, so you, everything you do comes with a price tag. It's like, it's almost like uh, you better give me X, Y, Z kind of praise or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really pissed at you. So you have expectations with everything you do. So n no gift is like a true gift. It's like you're wanting something, um, some kind of adoration in return and usually whatever they do falls short so it's a very um unrewarding type of bond for both parties so this unhealthy imbalance in the relationship keeps one person a baby who can't do anything right and then one person the caregiver who does everything and never gets taken care of so this is not rewarding as a loving relationship because it prevents growth in both people. That's number one. Number two, the savior. So this is the person who always comes to the rescue and anticipates the needs of others, knowing that when they're not going to be able to take care of themselves, basically. Like the savior is the one that's like, uh, wants people to be broken and to need them. There's a lot of overlap in these different roles. You might also find that you play two at the same time. So the martyr is the person that you always feel bad for, that runs themselves in the ground, that depletes themselves. The savior is the one that knows better than everybody, that um, is all good and really has no problems of their own. Everybody else is flawed, and they kind of look down on everybody else. So how this acts in love you choose mates who are broken and need you, and it's a role to stay soothed, basically. So this dysfunction keeps you kind of neglected in your needs, and it also protects your having to face things that are going on inside of you. So you can't have a relationship that doesn't allow you to be the one that is has got your shit together and you know best. So you'll choose people that are likely weaker or a mess or um, incapable. So when you're sick, you need somebody that's going to take care of you. So if you're a savior, this is not a good relationship to be in because you end up being on your own. And it's kind of a terrifying thing to feel because if you can't help you, nobody else can. That's it very much isolates you and prevents you from getting help if you need it. Number three, the baby. So the baby is the person who infantilizes themselves and wants to be cared for and uses that as kind of an excuse. Like they don't cope, they don't deal, just kind of throw their hands up in the air and act like they can do nothing. And so they pair well with the savior. The baby will use this as a tool to get attention. Um, 
And they literally sometimes act like babies, like talk like babies. I don't know if you know a person like that, but like the baby will do um, baby-like things as a way to try and perpetuate getting love from like the love they didn't get as a child, basically. So how this acts in love is this is really just the act to get love and attention from others. It's the way they learned to get attention and love. But it relies on an imbalance that is is based on them being incompetent. And just because a person acts like a baby doesn't mean they're completely, uh, they're not smart and capable. So over time, if a person keeps themselves in this role, like basically someone that's submissive and invalid in all of their um, opinions, that person will slowly end up feeling very like angry and resentful and that they are not uh, respected or appreciated. Like they'll end up choosing a savior who treats them like a child. And then when they want to be heard, they won't be. So it's a, it can be one of those relationships that if a person does start to grow, then things start to get really difficult. Number four, the teacher. The teacher is the one who knows best and is readily available to guide the lives of others, but never look at themselves. So this is a person who feels they have the answer for everybody and will talk at length about somebody else's problems. But this is just a method of bolstering their self-esteem. So it's another form of creating the need to be needed. So it's like a pad for this void that lives inside. How this acts in love. So if you're a teacher, you choose somebody very insecure and weak who you can control. You ignore yourself and all the issues and work that you need to do. And you instead live somebody else's life for them. Like your obsession becomes what somebody else should be doing with their life to make their life better. And if you have a significant other that becomes your focus, it ends up making both people very unhappy because you're robbing somebody else of the right to live their life and making and robbing them of the ability to make their own mistakes while undermining their abilities. And you're also neglecting yourself and avoiding looking at your own personal growth by closing off to the possibility that somebody other than you can help you. So the teacher will usually believe they know best and nobody else could tell them anything. And nor would they want to look at themselves. Everything is always what's happening in somebody else's life. Number five, the truth speaker. So this is the person that calls out the craziness of everybody else's bullshit. And they refuse to engage in the basically the play. So... They take on the role of being like, fuck this, I don't believe in any of this, and you all are crazy. So the downfall of the truth speaker is that they evoke a response from everybody else in the play. So they will then internalize the reactions as, I'm not loved, I'm a bad person, I'm the black sheep, nobody gets me. Um, Even if they are aware that their family is crazy, they will still likely internalize the effects of people being douchey to them. So, for example, if you are in an alcoholic family, the alcoholic will target the truth speaker for more punishment if they call out the wrongdoing of the alcoholic. So then they will be shunned by the other players because of the other players are are in the play. And if the truth speaker is like, you are crazy, then they're going to be like, why is what's wrong with that person? So how this works in love, you can probably cope with the craziest and most fucked up partners. 
So if somebody likes you, you will likely immediately like them just because they like you, because you believe yourself less than deep down. You will probably also choose others who treat you less than the way you should be treated um, or give you less than what you want or deserve or someone with, someone with uh, looser, looser morals than you have and you will accept it. Why? Because this is safer. Because you can feel comfortable in your own low self-esteem next to somebody who is kind of fucked up. Like it makes you feel at home and not like you are not good enough to be with them. Why? Because your parents, uh, a secret part of you believes that you are lesser and not good enough to ask somebody to give you the love that you prefer. And it's a way, it's the way that a kid will learn their own worth. If they're not taken care of by a parent, if they're not given love by a parent, they will internalize that as the truth. So you will also believe, um, probably, that you are in these relationships because you have a higher ability to adapt or a higher threshold for anything difficult. And therefore, you are just choosing partners because you can deal and you think it's not a big deal to you like it would to be would be to somebody else to you it's just doable based on what you've lived but this is also just a rationalization for not having kind of the muscle memory that would allow you to react organically to this type of person so you're supposed to have something in you that says ouch when somebody does something that's not good and because of your upbringing, you don't have that muscle. So you're like, cool, what? I don't know, what else? But that's something in you that needs to be trained. You need to grow it from scratch. So why we look for relationships based in need and not based on somebody that rewards our individual self is very simple. It's not a... A conscious behavior it's unconscious and it just relies on one person being weak and one person being the opposite kind of weak it's like a, a circle of distraction and it ma maintains the need in both people it's like it's like feeding this hollow place in both people so in these types of partnerships it kind of maintains and soothes an unconscious void inside and it kind of keeps both of you sick so it stops both of you from growth and the dynamic it sets up keeps you both bonded by this sick need. So it doesn't allow for both parties to ask equally or take the lead at one time or another. This is the crux of it. It's a way to feel safe and secure. The control provided by need ensures that we are loved, we get love. Like, I feel like I can control this, I can make this love come out of this other person. So this terrifying fear of losing somebody, of being abandoned, or of being unloved or unaccepted is something that was built into us at a very early stage by the family that raised us. The love becomes the medicine for the pain of what's inside that feels empty and unfillable. The we are not enough, we need more love. And if you have to work to receive love or you have to create your bond with your caregiver by helping them feel loved you in some place lack the knowledge that you are lovable as you are right now without having to do anything at all i don't know if that sentence made sense but basically i'll i'll say it more simply if you have 
if you had to work to receive love as a child, you will lack the complete and total conviction that you are lovable right now as you are without having to do anything at all for somebody else, without having having to try or manipulate them or act a certain way. You should be lovable, no strings attached, exactly as you are. It should not require anything of you. It should just be. It's like a bonus. Love is like a bonus like to just being in existence. So this giant brick of your foundation is missing. And it's a very simple understanding that you deserve to be loved just for being yourself and living your life and just being a good version of yourself, like being your best self. So why this is so tied to parents is that the time of your life when you have parents is when you shape and define your sense of yourself in context of the world. So it's like a, uh, you know, a building block. It's like breakfast. If you don't have breakfast, you tend to not feel full, but like the rest of the day. So this is the same kind of thing, but this is like the building block is love. Your parents' love gives you building block because it tells you that you are of value just as you are. And therefore it's what builds in that ouch. So if you have been given lots of love as a child and you feel of value, then you grow that healthy sense of reaction. Like you grow boundaries just as a byproduct. So if you're, if you had love as a child and you are like, if you meet somebody and they don't treat you well, you will say like, I'm out of here. Fuck you. Cause that's like the healthy reaction to have. If somebody isn't treating you the way you want them to, like, let's say you meet a douchebag at a party. They're like, yeah, I really like you. I'll call you. And then they don't call you. Like they wait a month. A natural healthy reaction would be like, fuck that douchebag. I am so not going to go out with him again. But because a lot of us don't have that reaction naturally, because we don't have this building block, instead, we think it's because we did something. It's because of us. It's a reflection of our lack of self-worth. Or sorry, our lack of worth. So it would be instead interpreted as maybe it's because I wasn't pretty enough. Or, like, if somebody's upset, okay, this is a comparison. Because I was a codependent, like, the textbook codependent. And I'm probably, I still have, like, random little ghosts of it. But, like, I was way worse codependent before. Um, before the wonders of therapy. So, okay, here's an example. One, uh, if somebody was in a bad mood, let's say if my boyfriend was in a bad mood, I'd be like, maybe they don't love me enough. Maybe they want space for me. And then I would try really, really hard to make things even more jolly and like perfect. And now if somebody, if Adam is in a bad mood, I'm like, Adam is in a bad mood. I'm going to not be around him. It's never, I never interpret it as something from me. But that's something I had to grow from scratch. So it's something you can do as well. Because it's all stemming from just this one little miswired building block. <laughs> so this missing brick just means you don't trust that you will be loved and therefore you cannot organically offer yourself to somebody without trying to create your value. So it's like a constant search to maintain this tether to like affection or feeling this love for somebody. And 
the the need is to control your appeal to them. So love can love should exist without manipulation or any kind of control. It's completely like uh, a verbal agreement. Either person can walk away at any time. There are completely invisible terms in a good relationship. It's mutually beneficial and needs no proving. There's no like, you know, contract needed. It's more like getting married is symbolic. So whether or not you developed these tendencies because you had addiction in your family or you had parents who were incapable, you can retrain your mind and grow into a healthy other half of a relationship, a healthy individual who is full in themselves and knows their own value so that you can give that to somebody else and not feel desperate for them and not feel like constantly searching to feel like it's not going to go away. It's not, it won't be scary and dire when you feel, when you grow this other part of yourself. So that leads me to the tools, part three. So these these are all how to begin change. And because this is very much a problem related to way, the way your brain is wired, to rewire it, you just have to, you have to first grow your awareness. So in order to change, you got to look at what you want for yourself that you don't have now and kind of become aware of that in itself. I think a lot of the time you don't really place any importance in what you want because it's never about that. It's all about like whatever somebody else wants or keeping somebody or it's it's about somebody else's issues if you have these kinds of relationships. So these are kind of like light tools because it's more about um, beginning a process and gently practicing it, like moving a little bit at a time. So number one is a two-parter and it requires a journal. It requires one or requires paper. This is an introspective journal exercise and it's a very, it's a fun one. I think it's fun because it's like, it's always fun to talk to yourself, I think. So part one, set your wants. So I'd like you to start this process just by writing to yourself, and I have questions I want you to answer. But this is what you would like for yourself just this year. Just think in this year to come, what do you want for yourself in these specific areas? All right, so grab your journal. Ready? Okay. So remember, these questions are only about you. What do you want for you, not what do you want another person to do? So this is about what you want for yourself, period. Let go of what anybody else is going to do or not going to do with their life, and don't base your answers off of the behavior of somebody else. I know that might be hard. Number one, what would you like to see happen in your life this year? What kind of change would you like to see happen in your life this year? Number two, what is one thing you would like to remove from yourself? Like what's one bad habit or personality defect, one, one character trait that you would like to change and let go of this year? Number three, what's one thing you would like to see resolved this year? What's one conflict you have that you would like to see let go in your life? Number four, what do you want for yourself in love? What's one thing you want for yourself or 
more it can all of these can be more than one but what's something you want for yourself in love number five what do you want more of in your relationship with yourself what do you want to embody how do you want to feel about yourself and I know that's hard if you are a codependent or you are in one of these types of relationships. It's really hard to see your your wants minus another person. So if it's really hard for you to answer these questions without making it about somebody else, here are some other questions to answer instead. What makes you hurt? What makes you angry? What feels good? and rewarding. What do you trust? What makes you uncomfortable? And what do you wish was different? Okay, so that's part one. Part two is look at your boundaries. So if you have the kind of love that hurts and drives you to extreme highs and lows, then healthy boundaries is one thing you lack in, a, in your makeup as a person. So this is a big factor in what holds you back in your life in a lot of areas because healthy boundaries are kind of the foundation for just generally basic self-care. So if, if you didn't grow them innately because of your childhood, that's okay. You can learn them and foster them starting right now. So it's just like a muscle that's really weak. But once you kind of identify it, it will start to grow stronger with just deliberate focus and care. So this might sound very vague and confusing. So here's where we will start. I want you to begin to look at the answers you have from part one. And let's start with the one thing you want for yourself this year. Like what's one thing you want for yourself? So let's say you want to have people in your life treat you with respect and kindness and love and not be unkind to you. So this is something you want. And therefore, this part of the reflection exercise is to begin to find ways of honoring that want. So you must be the one to begin to place boundaries on what behavior you will accept and tolerate from others. It might seem like a lot of what happens in your relationship is out of your control, but so much of it is within your power and so much of it is being created by you. But you might not be aware when you have a choice to alter it. So, so if your want is for people to treat you with kindness and respect, and here's a situation that will show you how you would look at setting a boundary. So let's say you're with a significant other or you're at work or something like that and somebody begins talking about another date that they had and graphically describing the sex they had or making lewd comments about the person. So this might be a time you feel disrespected by that person's conduct and it's making you feel violated and it's crossing a boundary for you. You're not comfortable with this. So that's another thing. It's like just start to be sensitive to the times when you feel yourself saying like, I don't like this. I don't feel comfortable with this. Whenever you hear yourself saying that, that is a sign that this is a boundary for you. So one way in this situation that you could draw the boundary and maintain the boundary is by leaving the room. 
So if it's a significant other and if you want to enforce this boundary, you can say, don't tell me things like that. It makes me upset and I don't want to hear it. You, you don't have to tolerate anything from anybody else ever. You are allowed to set any boundary that you need for yourself. And what it comes down to is honoring it and then acting on it for yourself. So I think that the, probably the instinct is to be like, you know, it's cool. They don't mean it. And like forcing yourself to kind of sit through stuff that when it is a violation of you. So this process will start for you just because you will know where your boundaries are. So just at this stage, it's difficult to enforce them right off the bat. Just start by becoming very aware of what your boundaries are and listening to when you can hear it inside of yourself. Because when you are ready, you will begin enforcing them with others and you will just know, you will feel really good about it. You'll feel justified and it will just, it will feel very solid to you. Like you'll be able to say with conviction, I am not going to go with you to this thing because I don't feel comfortable. And there will be no, like no one can talk you out of it. You won't be able to be told, like people will react and say like, you're being selfish and terrible. But like you will know in yourself that you are just taking care of yourself. Eventually it will become so innate that you won't even have to question it. You won't have to feel like, guilty about it, you know? So grow to know it, listen to it, and then eventually say, I'm going to start to choose this for myself. I want to respect myself and I want to begin to take care of myself in these situations. Whatever you want, you are valid to want it and you shouldn't feel guilty or shameful or selfish, or anything, or saying it, or believing it. You should, you, it's not crazy for you to want anything you want, ever. No one should ever be able to tell you that you are crazy or lesser for, for wanting what you do. So we are all who we are, and the best thing we can do is really be honest with ourselves about where we are falling short in listening to ourselves. So if you've been a codependent uh, for a long time and you're in a codependent relationship, you will find that your partner will feel you changing and they will feel the void of you completing this kind of unhealthy back and forth and they will feel it as a personal attack. So you will find that they try and pull you back in again by threats or by playing off of like guilt and and or trying to draw you back into the kind of feeding of your emptiness. So it'll be like, you know, baiting. So if you are the savior and you're with a baby, then you might feel like um, they might say you're acting out in your own best interest and you're selfish and take it personally. And then they will fall apart into a million pieces as a way to get you to come back and take care of them. So just be prepared. Take heart. You will know with increasing certitude that you are not wrong for wanting to take care of yourself. And what happens when you start to enforce your boundaries is you become a person who deserves the things they want. So the things you will chase will no longer evade you once you start looking at why you always catch something different. You can change everything in your life just by changing yourself. So once you just know your wants, you can gently begin to lean into them and you will find that your nerves start to act up like and react automatically to when things are not feeling right for you 
And so you'll find yourself enforcing them. And that's when suddenly your actions are aligning with what you want. When you begin respecting your own boundaries, you grow more of an understanding of who you are and you begin to trust and listen to that self more. Your needs and wants get clearer and stronger and then your life follows. So you literally begin to choose better people and you take care of yourself better and you feel like a more worthy person because you can sense when things are not aligning with your goals for yourself. So all you can ever do in your relationship is listen honestly to yourself, respect what your truth says, and then let go. Let go of the outcome. Let go of whatever has to come of that because it's out of your hands. And it sounds like it's painful and scary, but it's actually a beautiful relief. It means I don't have to try so hard after all. This isn't the end of the world because it's out of my hands. I can't control this and I can't change them so I can just be and not fix everything or save everybody and I can just mourn and let go of what will be will be so okay that was the long two part number one tool number two buy a book <laughs> I know this sounds like a cop-out kind of tool but it's really important in this particular part process because you need something that you can keep with you and kind of reorient yourself like day to day so the books I have that I love, Codependent No More, Courage to Change, The Language of Letting Go, um, I think I have all of those on my website on the reading list page, um, but just if you want to try a different one, Google one and download a sample. I think it's really, because it's one of those, uh, it's one of those dynamics that's so disorienting, you really need something that you can check up on and read and like kind of reaffirm where you are on your path. Like, I'm not crazy, okay? I am a good person. I am doing this for a good reason. So you can't see why what's operating inside of you right now. You can't see why you're choosing these types of people and why you feel so guilty or so stuck to these types of relationships. So the blindness is making you a kind of victim to a, a loop of behavior. So the instinct is to believe that, you know, you are just this way, but it's not. It's a very uh, old thing that you can actually start to work your way at, like back from so that you have more perspective. But getting that perspective means having outside sources of information. So books are a great way to kind of glean the perspective of a person that's been through what you've been, what you're going through right now. But I also really strongly suggest going to a therapist. Because this is one of those things that's very old and it like, it can be just, it, it's so helpful to have somebody who can like bounce off of you and tell you like, no, you are here, everything's okay. It's life changing and it'll help you stay grounded on your path and it'll help you move through it really easily. Strongly recommend it. I also strongly recommend 12-step meetings, any kind of 12-step meetings. I mean, it, it is very much a dynamic that's like similar to alcoholic addict families. So Al-Anon, uh, even AA, Love Addicts Anonymous or Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Number three, let the leaves fall in the forest. So poetic, isn't it? So basically practice letting things just be a mess or less than what you could make them. And this is just, what I mean is like start to practice letting go of outcomes, like trimming your focus on what is not worth your time and energy. 
Um, so it's like a way to train yourself from a need to control things or be involved in things. So just like a leaf falls in a forest, allow people to make their own mistakes without saving them or needing to insert yourself every single time. Just focus on trimming out the little, littler things that you might have an instinct to control and begin to judge what maybe is okay just being a mess. Things will happen as they will, and without you there, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's such a bad thing if things fall apart. So help uh, yourself to use and keep your own time for you and try refusing to step in. Just simply let others make their mistakes and kind of, it'll feel like torture sometimes, but this is a practice that will help you strengthen your muscle of separateness and me, I need to take care of me and myself only. I think codependents struggle with things uh, that they could have prevented, but in the scheme of life, this fixation is just a drain on your, where your focus should be. Remind yourself the value of your focus and where it might otherwise be more appreciated by you. For example, reading a book or writing in your journal. Number four, practice being as direct as a translator. So I just mean practice saying what you want with very clear, simple, precise words. I think one thing that's really difficult to do is say what you want. It'll be like one of those things that's like you feel like you can't get the words out of your belly. Like, hey, kind of, could you maybe... I'm sorry, but so just practice saying things almost like somebody else is saying them as the most direct and simple verbiage as possible. So one thing we tend to do is get into the minds of others and then think that they understand what we want and kind of set up, you know, stage pieces that point them in the right direction to do what we want them to do. But this is how we constantly set ourselves up for disappointment. We choose how we think others are meant to respond to us. And to us, it's obvious, but we believe everyone else sees this like we do. But in fact, it's not true. This is just the, the role itself has warped your eyeballs. So as a rule for yourself, say what you want directly. Say it clearly. Don't spare words. Just simple, precise language. I want you to do this, or I don't want you to do this. This will make me happy if you do this. Just as simple and direct as you could possibly be. Number five, practice expecting zero. So this is one of the best practices I can offer you. Goes for everybody. Just maintain zero expectations as a constant state of being. No matter what the situation is, whatever you're walking into, practice reminding yourself to have absolutely no expectations, good or bad. Just completely detach from the outcome. Don't guess what will be. Don't allow yourself to imagine one thing over the other or want one thing over the other. Make peace with both outcomes and be happy about out, both, out, both, la, 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 both outcomes equally. Just step back from the imagination of what is going to be, be and let go. Embrace the fact that you have no idea what is to come. Just... Leave the future for the future. Don't go there yet. Stay in right now. You're not trying to solve anything. You're not trying to plan anything because it doesn't exist yet. And this process is a relief because you will find that whatever the outcome is, you will be okay. If you just start practicing being okay with it ahead of time, you will actually feel okay when you do go through it. 
you're going to be fine one way or the other, no matter what. So it's the building up and the anticipation and the expectation of something that creates the reaction and the hurt in the reaction. So just remind yourself to accept and embrace both potential outcomes and let go of what has not happened yet. Just be neutral. Accept all possibilities. Let go. In closing, I want to say a major huge thank you to my latest sponsors. I'm so like excited, you guys. I'm like so moved and excited that people want me to keep doing this and I don't know, just makes me feel like a bajillion dollars. So I want to say a big ginormous thank you to Maggie. Maggie and your $25 a month donation. You're crazy. You're crazy awesome. Marie Laure. That's my French accent. I apologize. Marie Laure. Girlfriend and Steve. You all became monthly sponsors. And Steve, oh my God, dude, you're donating the second highest, and it warms my heart to triple the size. Um, and Girlfriend and Marie Laure, you're very kind, and I'm so humbled, and I'm grateful, and thank you for showing me. I'm helping you. It means a lot. So in closing, real relationships mean receiving equally, and even if that sounds really uncomfortable now or like something you would never want, it grows quite easily, and before you know it, it's a healthy, thriving, authentic part of who you are. Love that is equal is amazing, and more importantly, it's stress-free. You feel confident and relaxed, and you're allowed to fight and not talk for a while and trust that things are going to be okay. It's not so needy or dire, but it's still like all the good parts are there. All the warm and fuzzies are there. The reason I chose to write this episode is because I was a thousand percent a codependent, and I had to learn the hard way that it wasn't getting me into a healthy, loving relationship. And so I had to learn how to be whole and... Then I could be intimate. And it was so worth it. It's what I want you to have too. But if you are struggling right now, I know it can feel like a far off concept, but just start by simply looking at what you want for yourself. Honor that process. So I want to end with a passage from a book called The Prophet because it sums up what I believe real love in a relationship should be. This is a book that my grandma gave to me. She loved this as well. And I feel like it's such an awesome metaphor. I actually had my friend Jeremy, who married us, um, make it a part of our wedding ceremony because, in my opinion, it says all of the right things about love. So it's trimmed a tiny bit, so if you like it, perhaps give it a Google. <clears throat> and this is by a dude named Khalil Gibran, or Gibran. I don't know how to say that. <clears throat> but let there be spaces in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. Give one another of your bread, but eat not from the same loaf. Sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each other, sorry, but let each one of you be alone. Even as the strings of a lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. Give your hearts, but not into each other's keeping, for only the hand of life can contain your hearts. And stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart, and the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. End of poem. 
Love is whole and deeply soothing when you come from a whole and positive place, when capable and open to receiving equally. And this receiving is the true gift you give someone else you love because it allows them to give the greatest form of their self back to you. It's the most beautiful and rewarding gesture they can ever feel is giving of their love. So when you begin to grow your whole and healthy self, your love will change into something much different and more wonderful. You become like two trees, separate but stronger than apart. So focus on growing and make your tree the strongest it can be, and then you'll find that your match arrives to greet you. I hope you enjoyed this, and I send you my love. Smile. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.